Hi, everyone, and welcome to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name's Grace, and I'm really excited to introduce our new co-host today, Diljeet. Diljeet is a second-year medical student at McMaster University, and he'll introduce himself a little bit after me as well. But just kind of where I am at my life, I'm just in the last few months of medical school now, which is crazy to believe, and in the midst of residency applications, which has been equally exciting and nerve-wracking, but today I'm really excited to be covering our next pharmacology topic on vasopressors and inotropes. Hi, everyone. Thanks for that lovely introduction, Grace. I'm super excited to be here. So my name is Diljeet, and I'm part of the class of 2023 here at McMaster. Our cohort just started clerkship, so complete opposite of where Grace is at in applying for CARMS. I can't imagine how busy this time has been for you. I'm excited that we're able to make some time for today's episode, where we'll be focusing specifically on the physiology and clinical application of vasopressors, most commonly used in the perioperative setting, one of my personal favorite topics. And as always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our institution, and that this podcast is not intended for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. All right, let's get into it. So vasopressors are a huge topic with new evidence emerging constantly. I know as medical students, this can be a tricky topic, but in typical airwave style, we're going to cover what you need to know as medical students so you can feel confident in the OR. The objectives of this podcast are as follows. One, understand the hemodynamic goals during surgery. Two, review what are vasopressors slash inotropes. And then three, review the physiology of five commonly used vasopressors in the OR. And I think a good place to start is understanding why we need vasopressors and inotropes in the OR before getting into the nitty gritty details of how they work. So if we think back all the way to the first year of medical school, which is probably a bit easier for Diljeet than it is for me, we can remember that blood pressure is tightly regulated to avoid extremes and optimize end organ perfusion. Studies have demonstrated that interoperative hypotension significantly increases the risk of MI, AKI, and CNS ischemic events, and ultimately mortality. In surgery, it's typically suggested to maintain blood pressure within 20% of a patient's baseline. But to really understand pressure, let's review the factors that influence it by using the three blood pressure equations that I know everyone can dig out of their mind from first year. If you remember these three hemodynamic equations, you'll be a master at understanding how we can manipulate blood pressure and anesthesia. So the three equations are one, blood pressure is a product of cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. Two, cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. And three, mean arterial pressure is one-third of the systolic blood pressure plus two-thirds of the diastolic blood pressure. Ultimately, I know this is a lot of numbers and equations, but essentially if you put together the first and second equation, it can show you that your blood pressure is a product of your heart rate, stroke volume, and systemic vascular resistance, and that you can act on each one of these terms to essentially reach your blood pressure goals. And of course, whether you preferentially target the heart rate, the stroke volume, or the systemic vascular resistance will depend on the patient in front of you and the likely etiology of the hypotension. Generally, it's suggested to keep the systolic blood pressure over 100 and the MAP over 65 in most patients. The initial MAP goal of 65 comes from two large retrospective studies from the critical care literature that evaluated the management of blood pressure in the first 24 to 48 hours um, of septic shock. 
So these results showed that the best results or best patient outcomes were seen with a map between 60 and 65, and the time spent below this value correlated with the risk of mortality. But your ASA2 patient who's healthy and here for an elective cholecystectomy is not a critical care patient and can typically tolerate lower MAP values. However, it's a good target to keep in mind a, a MAP over 65. And MAP is more commonly used as a hemodynamic pr parameter than systolic blood pressure alone because it gives a more holistic assessment of end organ perfusion. So these concepts are part of the reason why anesthesiologists must master their understanding of physiology. Surgery presents unique challenges that can compromise hemodynamic stability and must be treated accordingly by the anesthesiologist to avoid end organ damage. During any surgical procedure, blood pressure can vary considerably based upon the patient's underlying pathology, the level of sedation, dosage of anesthetic medications, volume status, and to an extent, the degree of surgical stimulation. Put simply, vasopressors slash inotropes are tools that you can use to maintain adequate perfusion. All right, let's get into our second objective. What exactly are vasopressors and inotropes? So vasopressors are medications that induce vasoconstriction, which I think is kind of alluded to in their name, which in, in turn increase systemic vascular resistance. Inotropes increase contractility and heart rate, also known as inotropy and chronotropy, which improves cardiac output. Within the subcategory of inotropes, there are inopressors, which increase inotropy and chronotropy in addition to systemic vascular resistance, and inodilators, which increase inotropy and chronotropy but decrease systemic vascular resistance. And now that we have that down, to understand the mechanism of these drugs, it's all about the receptors. The key receptors to know are 1. The alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. These are located in vascular smooth muscle. They cause significant vasoconstriction which causes increased blood pressure through increased systemic vascular resistance. Additionally, they also cause venal constriction, which increases preload, and then that can subsequently increase your stroke volume. Next, we have our beta-1 adrenergic receptors. These are most common in the heart and cause increased chronotropy and inotropy, which increases blood pressure. Next is the beta-2 adrenergic receptors, these are found in the smooth muscle of the lungs and cause bronchodilation. And lastly, we have the dopamine receptors. Stimulation of these receptors vasodilates the renal vasculature. We won't cover this one as much today as it has fallen out of favor as recent evidence has shown that it does not have renal protective properties as once previously thought, but you may still encounter it occasionally. So there's a lot of vasopressors that exist, but today we're going to review the ones that you'll most commonly see in anesthesia. So we'll start easy with the most commonly used vasopressor in the OR, which is phenylephrine. So phenylephrine exclusively stimulates alpha-1 adrenergic receptors. It increases blood pressure by inducing arterial vasoconstriction, thereby increasing systemic vascular resistance, and through venoconstriction, which increases preload and stroke volume. It's generally well-liked in anesthesia as it has a short onset, a short duration of action around 15 minutes, and predictable dose-dependent responses. Phenylephrine may be administered as a bolus dose, so either between 50 mics to 200 mics or as a continuous infusion of 10 to 100 mics per minute. One important note with phenylephrine is that it can cause reflex bradycardia, so just something to keep in the back of your mind. And based on the mechanism of action of phenylephrine, it's particularly useful in situations where patients are hypotensive because of vasodilation, for example, such as after a spinal anesthetic. Moving on to our second agent, ephedrine. Ephedrine acts indirectly on alpha-1 
beta-1, and beta-2 adrenergic receptors. It is a non-catecholamine sympathomimetic that causes the presynaptic release of endogenous norepinephrine and may have additional effects on postsynaptic release and inhibition of norepinephrine uptake. Norepi acts as an agonist on alpha-1 and beta-1 receptors. It also acts on beta-2 receptors, which can induce bronchodilation. Based on ephedrine's vasopressor and inotropic properties, it is often used to treat hypotension with associated bradycardia. It is important to note that because ephedrine is an indirect agonist, it is less potent and it has a slower time of onset. Ephedrine is typically given in 5 to 10 mg bolus doses. Ephedrine capitalizes on the body's own stores of catecholamines, which can become depleted after prolonged use. Thus, a continuous infusion is not recommended with this agent. All right, and that nicely leads us to our third agent, norepinephrine. So norepinephrine acts on both alpha-1 and beta-1 adrenergic receptors, thus producing a potent vasoconstriction, as well as increased myocardial contractility. However, there's only a modest increase in cardiac output due to the simultaneous increase in afterload due to the alpha-1 adrenergic effects. A reflex bradycardia with this agent usually occurs in the response to the increased mean arterial pressures, such that the mild chronotropic effect is essentially canceled out, and the heart rate usually remains unchanged or even decreases slightly. Norepinephrine is the preferred first-line vasopressure for the treatment of septic shock. The typical doses of norepi is between 4 to 8 mic boluses, and a good starting dose for an infusion is uh, 0.05 mics per kilogram per minute. And clinically, you can typically titrate from there. So now moving on to discussing our fourth agent, epinephrine. Epinephrine is an endogenous catecholamine that is similar to ephedrine and acts strongly on alpha-1 adrenergic receptors to produce peripheral vasoconstriction. Specifically, It reduces splanchnic and renal blood flow, but increases coronary perfusion pressure. That is a good thing, and to compensate for the increased myocardial oxygen demand that is imposed by its activity on beta-1 receptors to increase contractility and heart rate. It also does have beta-2 adrenergic receptor activity. Wait, wait, Diljit, doesn't beta-2 vasodilate? How does that work to increase your blood pressure? That's a great point, Grace, and beta-2-mediated vasodilation in skeletal muscle may actually cause a lower diastolic pressure. Epinephrine is the commonly used agent in ACLS scenarios and in anaphylaxis. It may be administered IV or IM. The receptor affinity and corresponding clinical effects of epinephrine change depending on the dose. 1. Low doses have primarily beta-2 adrenergic effects. 2. Intermediate doses have primarily beta-1 and beta-2 adrenergic effects. And three, high doses have primarily alpha-1 adrenergic effects. Aside from using it in the above-mentioned situations, epinephrine is usually not a first-line agent. It is typically thought to be more arrhythmogenic and can cause coronary ischemia, lipolysis, and even hyperglycemia. Okay, so now on to our last agent, I know we've gone through a lot of information, but I promise this is a good one, vasopressin, or as I like to think about it, the other guy, the adjunct, the add-on. 
Yeah, so I think Diljeet is on to something because I distinctly remember being in the OR with a patient that, despite multiple boluses of phenylephrine and ephedrine, remained hypotensive. So we gave two units of vasopressin and they actually responded beautifully. So, but I will say it's more of a rarity that this would happen and it's largely used in refractory septic shock. Nonetheless, it's a non catecholamine vasopressor that you can keep in your back pocket or in your anesthesia toolbox. Vasopressin is a peptide hormone that stimulates V1 and V2 receptors, causing vasoconstriction and renal water retention. Through this, it increases systemic vascular resistance and causes venoconstriction, which may increase preload. Once again, because of the increase in afterload, its dominant effect on cardiac output is often to cause a reduction. It can be given as a bolus of 1 to 2 units or as an infusion of 0.04 units per minute. In terms of pros, Vasopressin may preferentially cause vasoconstriction of post-glomerular arterioles in the kidney, causing improvement in renal function, which is actually a great segue into our next consideration. Yeah, so we have made it through all five vasopressors. We did it. Our last point is just an important practical uh, consideration with vasopressors and inotropes, which is the route of administration. So there's been much discussion and controversy between peripheral and central administration, so either using a central line. Peripheral administration uh, theoretically runs the risk of kind of leaking into surrounding tissues, which can cause necrosis. However, in many case reports and retrospective studies indicated that this complication is quite rare, especially in anesthesia where these agents are only used for a short period of time. And generally, the following uh, is recommended when using vasopressors peripherally. So one, you want to use a 20-gauge IV or larger. Two, you want to use an IV site that's easily accessible, easily flushed, and has a low likelihood of being compressed through flexion or extension. So for example, site you might, might want to avoid is at the wrist. And three, central access is preferable for prolonged use. So say if you're using these agents more than 24 hours, or especially um, when using an ongoing continuous infusion. That makes sense. Wow, we've covered quite a bit today. So why don't we recap the main take-home points from today's episode? So one, tight control of blood pressure during surgery is important to avoid end-organ damage. Blood pressure is a product of heart rate times stroke volume times peripheral vascular resistance, and these variables are the targets of vasopressors and inotropes. Generally, a map of above 65 is used as a target. Two, vasopressors induce vasoconstriction, in turn increasing systemic vascular resistance. Inotropes increase contractility and heart rate, also known as inotropy and chronotropy. Three, commonly used agents in the operating room include phenylephrine, ephedrine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and vasopressin. And lastly, four, in anesthesia, peripheral sites are generally acceptable to administer these five agents. And stay tuned for our upcoming episode on a practical approach to hypotension so you can really see these agents in action. Thanks for tuning in, and we really hope you found it helpful to take a deep dive into the world of vasopressors. As always, we would like to thank our content editors. This episode was reviewed by Dr. Alexa Caldwell and Dr. Anthony Valente. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of Dr. Daniel Cordovani. And stay tuned for updates on our website and Twitter account and Instagram, where you can find us at at Airwave Podcasts. And if you're enjoying our content, feel free to give us a like or a comment on any platform you're currently using it. And until next time, 
Keep working hard, stay healthy and safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.